Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of 1 Peter. We've been walking through this book together uh, in, this, in this series. This is a, a book. Um, Peter wrote this uh, in 64 AD. He wrote this to a group of churches. This letter was to be circulated um, between these five areas, these provinces, and what is modern-day Turkey, the of the Roman Empire, and he wrote this, this letter, he says, I wrote this letter to you all to encourage you, because they were discouraged, they were being persecuted, and this persecution was going to get a lot worse from the Roman Empire. Many of these recipients of this letter would be killed for their faith, because they believed the things that we believe this morning. And says so that I wrote you this letter to encourage you and to, and to remind you and, and that you would stand firm in this faith. That when the, the torrents of this, this life come and hit you, that you would remain firm on this rock of our Lord Jesus. And he started out the letter. He said, the first thing I want you to tell you is I want to I paint this vision for you, remind you of this vision of, of what we have, of this salvation that's been given to us from our God, of this inheritance that when each of us die, one day we're going to receive this inheritance. And he says, this is an inheritance that God is protecting with his own power and protecting you as you walk through this life. He will protect you and ensure that one day what he's promised you, he will give you. In fact, he said, even when you face trials, he's even using these trials for your good to refine your faith so that when you stand before him on that final day, it will glorify him. So he, he paints this beautiful vision, and he says in the second half of the chapter 1, he says, as you behold this vision, you will become transformed by this vision. You will change, and you will actually start to become holy as your God is holy. And then he said at the end of the chapter, you will start to love one another in the same manner that he loves us. And now we're going to look at, in the, in the first half of chapter 2, which is where we'll be this morning, he shows us what the people of God look like. He says, as you become this loving, holy community, this is what, this is what you're going to start to look like. This is sort of like if our church started to do some online dating. Like, this is our eHarmony.com profile, right? Like, this is what we would look like as a church. Have you seen? They actually have some Christian dating websites. There's one that's called equallyyoked.com. <laughs> that's wrong on so many levels. Um, but he says, so what we're going to look at this morning is there's three characteristics. Three characteristics of what a loving, holy community looks like and what our purpose is as a body of believers. Who are we and what were we put on this earth for? First of all, we are a, we are a people who are to crave Christ. He starts out by saying, therefore. Now we've got to pause there. Whenever we see a therefore, what do we always ask? What is the Therefore. He is linking something he just said to something else. Because of this, this. So what is he saying, therefore, for? Well, he, remember he wrapped up chapter 1 by saying, love one another deeply. Love one another from the heart. Why? Because love is what will stand the test of time. You can spend your earthly existence trying to glorify yourself, make others think you're just really, really cool. But he said, you're like a blade of grass or a flower that's here today and gone tomorrow. Your glory is nothing, but the love of God is what stands forever. So he says he called us to love one another deeply from the heart. And now he's going to begin chapter 2. He says, because you've been called to love one another, therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. What he says is, these are ways, he shows us we can undermine 
a loving community. Because you've been called to love each other and get rid of these things. This is not an exhaustive list of sins, certainly. There are many other ways that we can disobey our Father. But these are specific sins that uniquely unravel loving relationships. Specific sins that uniquely unravel loving relationships. Let's take a little tour through them. Number one, he says malice. Get rid of all malice. Malice is wicked ill will. Basically meaning it's a desire to hurt someone in will or deed. You want bad for them or you actually... Now, why would we do that to somebody else? I think there's a lot of reasons. Some of them he's going to get to in a minute. But I think one of the reasons, I know for me, a lot of times you want to see bad happen to someone else because they did bad to you. It's revenge, right? And, and, and which is actually the opposite state of, of love, mentally. Where love says, you know, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Or malice says, do unto others because they did it to you first. Secondly, deceit. This is deliberate dishonesty. In other words, lying on purpose. Blatant lies. Why would we do this? Where does this come from? It comes from a desire to gain an advantage or preserve a position by deceiving others. In other words, I want something and I have to lie to someone else to get it. To stay where I want to stay or to go where I want to go. And we know, so many times, we think, well, it's just a little lie. It doesn't make a big difference. But we've all seen, from us or from other people around us, how easily a, a lie can spread and cause harm. Hypocrisy. He says, get rid of hypocrisy. It's pretended piety and love. Pretending to have it all together. Pretending on the outside, everything looks good. My life is perfect, but on the inside, everything is falling apart. Why, do we, why, do we, why are we hypocrites? It's a desire to not be known for what is. A desire to not be known for what really is. That if, if I can put this fake front up, that perhaps people will like me. Perhaps people will accept me. And perhaps I will get, again, what I am getting, what I want. If I can pretend to be something I'm not. The next one, envy. Envy is resentful discontent. To not be content with your lot in life and to resent others. Where does this come from? It's a desire for some privilege or benefit that belongs to another with resentment that they have it and you don't. In other words, you know, as I was looking at this list and, you know, applying it uh, to, to my life, just kind of letting it be an x-ray into my own soul, this was kind of the one that, that, that kind of popped out to me. And I see how often I look at other people, like, you know, I coach basketball, and I'm, I'm watching other coaches or other programs that they have success. And instead of just being excited for them, I'm thinking, well, I want that success. And, and, and I want to, to have that for my team. And, and then I start to resent them for having what I want or what I'm not. And then I even see that come out into the spiritual realm where, you know, I look at other believers and I say, well, why can't I talk like that guy? Why can't I go out and be a witness like him or play the guitar like that guy? And instead of saying, praise God, that he's using other individuals, giving them gifts and having them be effective, I look at other churches in our community and say, well, why can't I, why can't my church be that? And I'm discontent with what I have and resent others for having what I think that I want. And it unravels these loving relationships. Finally, slander. Slander, which is backbiting lies. Backbiting lies. And this comes from a desire to tear down, often driven by a deeper desire to deflect attention from one's own failings. 
if I can pull you down and you pull, pull you through the mud, then perhaps people will overlook my own shortcomings, my own failures. And if I can push people down far enough, I'm on the top of the heap. It's not a very pretty picture, is it? And, and do you see the common denominator here with all of these things? It's, it, what it is, it's looking out for yourself at the expense of others. This is what undermines a loving community. Looking out for myself instead of others. When love is the exact opposite of that. Jesus was love. He put somebody else's needs ahead of his own. And that's what we're called to do. To be a servant of all. But instead this list puts us up and makes everyone else a servant of us. So how do we get rid of these things? Clearly, I don't think there's anyone in this room that wants to be known, wants to engage with these things. So how do we get rid of these things? Well, it's not by focusing on stopping them. It's not, man, i got to stop being envious of people. Man, i got to stop treating people the wrong way. It's not by focusing on stopping these things, but it's by turning your attention to something else. And this is what uh, Peter says in verse 2. Um... You know, I was thinking last week, I, I told you a little bit about my nephew, Ray, he's, who's back with us this Sunday. Good to see he's not backsliding anymore. He's walking with the Lord again. That's encouraging. Even wore a tie to make up for his absence last week. That's good. I see Jeremy didn't wear a tie, though. That's interesting. Um, when I was watching Ray, obviously this had a big impact on me. I'm going back-to-back illustrations here. As I was watching him, and he was upset... There was only one thing in the world that he wanted, one thing in the world that would satisfy him, and I couldn't offer that, okay? I would try to make faces at him, not impressed. I would offer him, I would say, I will give you my car if you'll just stop crying. Like, please, I'll give you all the money I have, which wasn't much, but I'll give it all to you if you'll just, I even had a bottle of his mom's milk sitting right there. Here, take this. He wouldn't take it. There was only one thing in the world that would stop him crying right then, and that was mother's milk, straight from his mom, and I couldn't help him with that. And you see, Ray didn't have to focus on not wanting all those other things. That wasn't where his focus was, right? In light of the desire for that milk, everything else, all those other things were just non-existent to him. I don't care about any of that stuff. I want one thing and one thing only. And this is what Peter is telling us in verse 2. And for the record, I did finally get him to sleep. You can't really see, it's kind of dark there. But uh, I'm not the worst uncle in the world. But he says here in verse 2, he says, Like newborn babies, like Ray, crave pure spiritual milk. Why? So that by it you may grow up in your salvation. He says, don't focus on not doing the wrong things. Crave what is good. Now, if you think about it, this is kind of interesting. What What Peter is commanding us here is he's commanding us to desire something. He's commanding us to crave something. Now, isn't that kind of weird? I mean, you could, until you're blue in the face, command me to crave diet soda, and it's not going to happen. Like, diet soda is disgusting. That, that aftertaste that it gives me just wants to make me, like, punch things. I cannot stand it. And you can, you can get me to drink it. Like, I can chug a diet soda. You can force feed it to me, but you can't make me want it. You can't make me crave it. But what the command here is, is to crave something. So how do, we, how do we obey this command to crave? Because there's a difference between obedience and desire. There's a difference between doing something and wanting to do it. And I think all of us, myself included, 
All of us go through droughts where we don't crave the Lord, where we don't want to grow, where we don't care about the things that are spiritual. And maybe some of you are in that place this morning. So how do we obey this command to crave pure spiritual milk? And this is what I love. You know, um, again, I owe a lot of, a lot of what I gleaned from this, this study from John Piper. Um, you know, he, all of his sermons are online, actually. Audio, sometimes video, and, and uh, transcripts. And, to, you know, Google him. Uh, look at these. He has some amazing things to say in this, uh, about this book. But one of the things he said was he quoted John Bunyan. Who many of you know John Bunyan. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And John Bunyan had this little poem um, sim- simple words that express some beautiful thoughts into regard to what we're talking about this morning. He said, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. The law demands things from us, but it doesn't give us the tools to do them. It says, Here's what required of you, but then it doesn't give us what we need. To to do it. We can't, our flesh can't keep the law. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The gospel bids us fly and it gives us wings. You see, really, Jesus' calling was higher than what the law demanded. Remember he said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, the, the law that says this, I tell you this, the law says do things externally, I'm actually looking at the heart, I'm looking at the mind, and what his calling was actually higher, but the difference is this, the good news is that Jesus came not just to show us what to do, but he's doing it through us. And he commands us to fly, but then he is the wings that helps us to fly. He is the means and the end. Our goal as a believer is to look like Jesus. How do we look like Jesus? It's through Jesus. It's Jesus living his life through us. He is the command and the means to meet that command. So this morning, if you're, if, if, you know, if you're, uh, you're simply not feeling it, you're not craving Christ, you don't want to grow, you just don't care, this is what you do. You simply say, Lord, you come to him and you confess that. I don't, I don't crave you. I don't crave these things that that we're talking about, singing about. And I'm just going to ask you and trust you for that craving. Amen. It's that, it's that, it doesn't have to be long-winded. You don't have to repeat yourself. God heard you. And you ask and you shall receive. Because this is the heart of God. He wants you to want his son. And the one who is faithful to keep his promises will deliver And I can say from personal experience, I've never come to the Lord and said, Lord, I want to crave you, and him not meet that request. Now, it might not be on your timetable, how you want it to look, or when you want it to look. We're not God. But if we come to him and ask for that craving, he will give us the wings to fly. And then what he says in verse 3, he says, Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, just as we did when we first come to him, when we crave Christ and we taste of him, what we find is that he is good. And our expression is just like this little kid mounting on the chocolate cake. You see, what happens is once we start to crave him, we will begin to obey our Father, not because we ought to, but because we want to. Jacob was talking about this in our elder meeting this last week. That if, as a father, a parent's desire for their child is not 
obedience because you have to obey, because you know you're going to get a spanking or get sent to your room or, or whatever if you don't obey, but be, that they would obey because they want to obey, because they want to please you, because they see that it's good. And, and once we're satisfied with him, when we come to him and taste of him and see that he is good, what's going to happen is the natural outflow of that is going to be love for other people. Because our needs are met. We don't go back to verse 1 and try to push ourselves up on the top because we're already sitting at the right hand of the Father. Son, can't get any higher than that. We have everything we need for this life and beyond. And so now we're free to look at the needs of others, to put our eyes away from ourselves and onto our community. And the reason this healthy, loving community is so essential is because what we are becoming, what God has called us to in our identity and in our purpose is corporate. It's not individual. It's corporate, meaning it's, it's together. Second thing we're called to look like is built on the cornerstone. Walk you through verses 4 through 8 here. He says, as you come to him, sorry the typing is a little bit smaller, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. For in Scripture it says, and he's going to quote Isaiah and the Psalms here, in Scriptures it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe... The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, which is another word for cornerstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. There's a lot there. We're going to go back through and just grab a couple of highlights. Definitely we're not going to be able to be exhaustive with our time this morning. First thing he says here is he talks about, he references the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone at that time, things have changed a little bit now, but at that time when they would build homes, the, the cornerstone was the first stone that was set in construction of a house. It was the first stone that was set in the construction of a house. And these people would have been very familiar with this because at that time, everyone built their own homes. We didn't have the specialization that we have. Anywhere. I mean, I've never built a home. I've never owned a home, but... Um, we, I, I, but so a lot of us, some of you have built homes here today, but most of us aren't familiar with the construction world. But here, almost everyone in his audience had built their own houses. So they'd be very familiar with the picture that he's painting here. And he says that this, this cornerstone, it was the most important stone in the construction of a house. All the other stones were set in reference to this first stone. And it determined... And determine the position of the entire structure. Like the rest of the building conformed to the angles and the size of this stone. In other words, it was the DNA of the building. So what's the building going to look like? Well, what does the cornerstone look like? Because the cornerstone determined what the rest of the building would be shaped like and what its angles would be. The entire structure of the building hung on what the cornerstone was. And if the cornerstone was removed, like when you're playing a game of Jenga... If that cornerstone would be taken out, the entire building would collapse. It all rested upon that cornerstone. And you see, we as the church, as the people of God, we are built on the rock, on Jesus. And our significance, our only significance, is in reference to him, our cornerstone. 
And just like that cornerstone, he, the, Jesus determines the DNA of the rest of the building. What do we look like? Well, what does the cornerstone look like? That's why we're called to be holy as he is holy, because he determines our DNA. And if Jesus was removed, the entire building would collapse. As we say, without Jesus, we would have no hope. My hope is built on nothing less than the cornerstone. Jesus, his blood and his righteousness. And yet, our responses to him, even in this room, are different. Some have rejected him, and some have come to him. He says here, says, you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but, and here's the most important part, chosen by God and precious to him. The thing that matters most about any other thing in the world is what God thinks about it. The most important thing about you is what God thinks about you. The most important thing about Jesus is what God thinks about Jesus. And this scripture is very clear, that God chose Jesus before the foundations of the world to be this cornerstone, to be the foundation of the church, to be the savior of the world. And he says he was precious to him. More than anything else in the world, Jesus was the most precious thing in God's sight, his one and only son. And what he says... He says, if you come to him, as you come to him, the living stone, he quotes Isaiah, the one who trusts in him. If you come to him and put your trust in him, he says, that person will never be put to shame. Other translations say they will never be disappointed. If we make Christ our foundation, if we put all our eggs in that basket, he says it's a sure foundation that will never, never falter. You will never be disappointed with the decision to come to him. But not all have made that decision. He says, now you, you who believe, this stone is precious. We see him like God sees it. He's precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Now this is very interesting. Many, of course, have rejected Jesus. The Israelite, his own people, he came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. The very people he came to rejected him. And in fact, they crucified him. They killed him. And many other, millions of people, rejected Jesus, have not come to him. But what's interesting, and I love what he says here, the one they rejected, the stone the builders rejected, what happened to him? He has become the capstone. In other words, what happens to Jesus when people reject him? What changes about the cornerstone when people reject him? The answer is nothing. Nothing changes. Whether we come to Jesus reject him. He is the cornerstone. Why? Because God chose him before the foundations of the earth. God decided Jesus will be the cornerstone of the church, and and everybody who comes to him will be saved. Man, and and he says, if you don't come to him, that's not going to change anything. You may, the next verse says, you may stumble and fall, but Jesus is the cornerstone. And the gates of hell will not prevail against him. You see, man cannot thwart God's plans. Man cannot thwart God's plans. But what is God's plan? What is his plan for us? And we'll finish looking here. The third point is that we are called to be declaring his praises. Verse 9 and 10, he says, But you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
I was reading about, when I was reading these verses, I, uh, I, was, I thought about the Lion King, obviously. Um, and I was thinking about this story. You remember Simba, um, he, most of the movie, Simba is running away. He's running away from his home at Pride. He's been running since his father, Mufasa, was killed by his uncle, Scar. Okay, stable home life. Um, and so Simba has been running. He's been running away. And what we find here is Rafiki the monkey, he shows him, he says, I want you to look at your reflection here. And out of this, I don't know, some magical way, he actually brings Mufasa back. And Mufasa comes in these clouds and he's speaking to Simba. And his message to his son, he says, remember who you are. Remember who you are. But he says it in a much deeper James Earl Jones voice. Remember who you are, Simba. He says, you, what, what? he says, Simba, you are my son. You are the son of the king. And he says, you are the one true successor to the throne. And what I want you to do is return to Pride Rock and be who you were created to be. Now, okay, it's a scene where a monkey shaman reconnects a lion to his dead father. So it's not the best theology in the world, but the point here is true. That when Simba was at his lowest point, when he was running, he needed to be reminded of two things. Who he was, his identity, and number two, what he was put on this earth to do, his purpose. And so often, the waywardness of man comes from a confusion or a neglect of who we are and what we've been created to do. You look at this world around us and the confusion that exists, and at times exists in your own heart, This comes from a lack of understanding of our identity and our purpose. And Peter says, in the midst of this world that has rejected the cornerstone that we are called to crave, remember who you are. And so he paints this picture for the churches to remind them who they are. Five things. Number one, he says, you're a chosen race. You know, I have have deep-seated Italian pride. I'm proud of my olive skin and my difficult-to-pronounce last name and um, pasta. I love this. But, but then I found out just a couple years ago that I'm actually 75% German <laughs> and, and only a quarter Italian, which weirdly bummed me out. And I don't know why. I, don't, I have nothing against Germans, you know. They, you know, 1940s took a left turn, better than that. Um, well, let's get away from that. Um, but he says this, this chosen race, this chosen race is not based on skin tone. It's not based on... Place. It comes from a much deeper, more important place. He says that you are a new people who have been chosen from all the races of the world. Red, yellow, black, and white. That's not what determines this, this chosen race. Our DNA goes much deeper than that. And this is the people who have come to the cornerstone, those who believe. And what he says next, he says you're a chosen race, but number two, you are God's possession. He says, a people belonging to God. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. And this is such an incredible idea. The most important thing about being a chosen race is being chosen. The most important thing about being a chosen race is being chosen. God wants us. Let your heart camp on that for a moment. That God wants us. He doesn't just rescue us and say, well, you don't have to go to hell, you know, you're good to go. It's much deeper than that. He desires you. He wants you. In fact, Scripture says that we are his inheritance. 
that we belong to him, that he wants us. You know, I remember growing up when you would pick teams for like sports at recess. Remember how humiliating it was to line up against that fence and just like wait and hope that you would be picked? Like nothing made your heart swell more than being the the first one picked on the team and nothing was bigger blow to your ego than being the last one to picked on the team, okay? Or there was even someone that hadn't come out to the playground yet, and they're like, well, we call him whenever he gets here. And you're like, what, what about me? And, and I don't know which one of these guys you could identify with most up there. I've physically gone through many of those stages. Um, but, but there's nothing we desire more than being wanted, than being possessed. And he says, once you were not a people, once you were just a bunch of losers, a bunch of misfits that were just standing up against a fence that nobody had chosen, but now God has chosen you. We are a people. He has placed us on his team, and he wants us. Number three, we're mercy receivers. He said, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When God chose us, he saw us shackled in our sin and our shame and in our guilt, and he chose not to leave us there. He showed us mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. What we deserved by our own actions, by who we are, we deserved his wrath. We deserve eternal separation from him. But praise God that he decided to show us mercy. Our fundamental identity, the most important thing about us, is not our actions. It's that we've been acted upon. Our fundamental identity is not what we have done or can do, but it's what God did for us. Our race is primarily marked as mercy receivers. Number four, we're called to be a holy nation. A holy nation. He says, you know, what, what distinguishes a nation? It's a group of people usually have a common ancestry, and you look like each other, you talk like each other, you eat the same foods, you live in the same manner, and, you, and that looks different than the other nations, right? He says, I've called you to be holy. And we saw last week that this is being, this is being set apart from other things, setting apart from the ordinary sacred for something special. And we, God, is holy, and therefore we, his people, are also called to be holy. This nation that's set apart is to look different than all the other nations here on earth. We are to look different, talk different, live different than the other uh, cultures and peoples on this planet. And finally, he says, you're a royal priesthood. Some of these translations say a kingdom of, of priests. And this is twofold, this, this imagery here. Number one, if you remember when Jesus died, remember how the curtain was torn in two in the temple? So the the, the, the uh, Gospels tell us that. This was a symbol, because before in the Old Testament, when you would go in, into, the, into the temple, this curtain divided everything else from the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and only he could go in there once a year. Anybody else that tried to go into the Holy of Holies would die. It was a symbol of God's presence. That any of us tried to go into God's presence, we would fall down dead. When that curtain was torn in two, it symbolized Jesus' blood made a way for us to enter the throne room of God. And now, we don't need a priest to go in there for us. We have immediate access to the throne of God. What an incredible privilege. That we can just go right in confidently, humbly, because it's not our own doing, but we can go in there confidently to, to God's throne room and, and, and talk to him as a son talks to a father. And secondly, as we said, we're a holy nation. We've been set apart for a specific job. A holy, sacred job. The, the Old Testament, the priests had a job. They were the intercessors between God and man. We don't need the priests anymore because Jesus was our high priest once and for all. 
which leads us to our purpose, the job that God has given us, and we'll end here this morning. Why did God call us to be this? Why did God call us to be a holy nation that he chose, that he possessed, that he showed mercy to? He called us to be this for one specific job. He says, you've been called to be this so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Our purpose on this planet is to declare the greatness of our God. You see, it's not about us. God was the one who did all of these things to us and for us and through us. And yes, those things were for our good and they were for our benefit, but ultimately all things are for and unto his glory. You see, in other words, God gave us the identity he gave us so that we could show his identity to every tongue and tribe and nation. We are who we are so we can show the world who he is. That is our purpose. And isn't this, that's the coolest job on planet Earth, right? That we, we've been called to, to go around until the day we die telling everyone about this great God who pitied us, who showed mercy on us, who chose us, made us his people. He made us holy. He gave us this special job. He called us from the dark to the light. He called us from death to life. And our job is to tell how great is our God. So how do we do this? How do we declare his praises? Well, what Peter said first, it's by getting rid of everything that doesn't look like him. It's by getting rid of all malice and envy, and deceit in your life, and the hypocrisy. And to love each other, and to love the world. Our actions speak louder than our words. You see, we can't declare his holiness, and his love, and his goodness, if we are not holy, and loving, and good. So let's be his kingdom of priests here on earth. At our jobs, let's declare his praises. In the way that you interact with your coworkers this week, in the, in the way that you respond to your boss or the people that you oversee, and let's declare his praises in words. When God gives you opportunity to be bold, to declare his greatness to those who are around you at work. In our, in our homes, let's declare his praises. That we might sing songs together as families and, and be in the word together as families. I don't know what, what family worship looks like for you. But is that happening? And, and even more importantly, the way that you exemplify Christ in front of your children and for your spouse. The way that you love your family well. And as, as a community, we come here this morning to declare his praises and the songs that we sing and that we're going to sing after the sermon and, 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 and getting into his word and dwelling on his praises. But more importantly, are we declaring his praises in the way that we love each other in this room? In the way that we love this community outside of these doors? Are we declaring his praises? We've been called to the business of eternity. In this rat race that the world's living, it's all going to fade like a blade of grass. But above all, we must crave Christ like Ray craves his mother's milk. See, we can't lead someone farther than we are ourselves. And if we don't crave Christ, how in the world can we bid someone else to do so? We say, you need Jesus, and you need to want Jesus, but we don't want him. And how do we crave him? We end with the words of John Bunyan. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet or hands. It's not by following rules, but far better news the gospel brings. 
it bids us fly and gives us wings. Father, we come to you this morning as the song that we sang. We pray that your spirit would make us humble. As we come before you, we recognize that we're not worthy of this calling, that you chose us out of this world, that you called us to be your own possession, a a chosen race, a, a holy nation set apart from all else, to be your kingdom of priests here on this earth. You set us apart to declare your praises to this world so that the world would know how great you are, how loving you are, how holy you are. Father, we've received your mercy. We did not deserve that. Father, give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Not so that we might be better than our brother and push ourselves on top of them, but so that we can show the world your holiness and your love. Father, may we declare your praises as we, as we leave this today, go out this afternoon and spend time with our families and spend time with our friends and we get into our jobs on Monday morning. I pray that this week that what would be put on our heart above everything else is to understand our identity, to understand our purpose and declare your praises to a world that needs to know how great you are. And may our words not contradict our actions. May we be holy as you've called us to be holy. But Father, we can't do that on our own. When we try, we stumble and we fall. But your gospel says, fly, and it gives us the wings. May we rest on the wings of your Son, Father. And as he lives his life through us, may we experience your holiness, your loving, and your goodness in our hearts, into this community. Father, we love you. We thank you for your precious son. May we crave him as a baby craves milk. And it's in his beautiful, chosen, precious name that we pray. Amen.